Welcome back to Tumor Board with Hilario and Anish. I'm your co-host, Anish. And this is Hilario. This week on Tumor Board, we talk to Dr. Anna Lee. Dr. Lee is a radiation oncologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center. She specializes in the treatment of head and neck cancer, but more importantly, she has been an advocate for gender equity in oncology. As you'll learn, she is one of the early founders of, of the Society of Women in Radiation Oncology, a group dedicated to discussing issues for female practitioners. And we discuss her new study related to family planning and fertility amongst oncologists. And here's our discussion with Dr. Lee. So Dr. Lee, welcome to our show, Tumor Board. We're excited to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Lee, I had reached out to you because I saw a post by your colleague, Dr. Fumiko Chino, and it was about your study titled Family Planning, Fertility, and Career Decisions Among Female Oncologists, and it was published in October 2022 in JAMA, um, the Journal of Medical Oncology, and we thought it was really interesting, and we're definitely going to discuss a lot of the paper in the episode, but when I further looked into your career a little bit, um, and I've seen some of the other studies you've published, it seems like you've done a lot of work in this under-researched space of family planning, you know, gender equity, fertility in the oncology space. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in this particular area? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, when I was a resident, um, we, I had a co-resident in my program, Virginia Osborne, and, um, you know, she was in the process of family planning and, you know, looking for maternity leave and um, finding that there wasn't a lot of guidance in that space. And, you know, even having to discuss with our program director about how much time she could take off and, um, you know, sorting out those mm -hmm. details, um, you know, there really was not a lot of information out, about, out there about how programs should um, manage these sort of situations. And so... Um, you know, we would have discussions in our resident room and uh, we felt like there was a need to mobilize to advocate for female residents. And we felt like there was really no group out there um, that we could associate with while we were in training. Um, right. And so she founded SWORO, mm. which is a Society for Women in Radiation mm. Oncology. And I was involved with the early development of this. And through these efforts, mm -hmm. we started looking into the experiences and concerns of female residents. And we developed into and with the goal of promoting um, gender equity. And so very quickly, there was this huge interest, I think, out of out of this, um, there was more interest in um, the AAWR, which is the Association, American Association of Women in Radiology and Radiation Oncology. Um, you may have heard of Radonc Women's Physicians Group. So this is um, mm -hmm. a Facebook group um, where a lot of women have started joining to discuss cases, to discuss, um, you know, different career-related situations. And then we also have um, SWORO now, which is focused on um, residency level and trainee level issues. So, um, you know, there's been a lot that's also spawned out from the COVID pandemic. So it's been a very fruitful and interesting time. <laughs> interesting. So how did you kind of get from there to this specific study was there preliminary work you've done because this is you know this this specific study was a real large study There's a lot of people who took this survey yeah well through swaro we had um 
we had done a resident survey and out of that, you know, concerns for um, maternity leave came out um, even during the COVID, pan- COVID pandemic. Um, as you all mm-hmm. may be aware, the ABR board exams were canceled. And then from that experience, there were there was a lot of backlash in terms of women feeling like, uh, well, you know, I did family planning to plan around the ABR. And so yeah. from that experience, you know, we felt like there weren't many options for us in terms of, you know, flexibility. Um, you know, people were, you know, sharing on Twitter and in public forums that, you know, they had to like pump in the bathroom during the examination mm. breaks. There were there were just a lot of um, underlying issues that were being exposed through the COVID pandemic. And so um, yeah. I was training in New York City as a fellow at that time and even just um having these conversations with my colleagues, you know, we're all young female oncologists in our childbearing years. And um, it was, you know, in those environments there, people are just much more open about talking about, you know, oocyte preservation. You know, they'd be like, yeah, what are you doing this weekend? I'm getting my eggs frozen. You know, they're very open (laughs) about that. And so, um, I mean, I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, in though in New York, a lot of institutions um, have support, um, insurance support for those kind of procedures. And so mm-hmm. when we were talking about that, we figured, we realized that this may not be commonplace in a lot of places and um, women's experiences may not be similar in different areas. So we wanted to explore that. And so that's how the mm-hmm. survey came about. That's very interesting, uh, Dr. Lee. You know, female oncologists are often spending their childbearing years in training and also trying to establish their careers at at the same time. By the time people really feel like they've had a foot in in their careers, usually like in the late 30s or mid 30s, and these are the times where people experience fertility issues, right? Um, So I was seeing the like, you know, the rate of infertility is like as high as like 30 something percent versus the general public. where it's probably around like 15 to 18%. The attitudes around like, you know, trying to support our female oncologists, uh, uh, it, I, I feel like it, it, that's not something that we really uh, see a lot of during residency. Um, and so in trying to do this study, what 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 do you think were your barriers that you, you thought you would probably encounter in trying to gather the data for, for your research? Yeah, that was a challenge in terms of, you know, we were developing this survey, we were talking to um, fertility specialists at our institution mm-hmm. at Memorial Sloan Kettering and um, trying to figure out, you know, what are <clears throat> some questions that we could ask that would really um, help us understand all the different types of issues related to fertility and family planning. So we tried to um, separate or group the questions based on um, the barriers to family planning uh, when it came mm-hmm. to one's career, to understand the association of fertility treatment options uh, with career decisions, mm-hmm. and then also um, pregnancy-based discrimination, um, specifically related to like maternity leave and things like that. So, um, I think one, you know, even though we vetted the questions, we had several groups of people look at the questions and make sure that we were, um, you know, addressing all potential scenarios. We still mm-hmm. didn't capture everything. You know, after we published mm-hmm. the survey and we um, sent it out. We would get emails like every week, you know, somebody would be offended <laughs> about a question or somebody would be like, well, oh, wow. you know, um, I have a husband who's a stay at home dad and mm-hmm. he's a primary caregiver. And, you know, one of your questions didn't have that um, answer choice. <laughs> and 
you know, it made me realize how even though we think we're very open minded and we try to account for every potential scenario, it's very difficult to do that in a survey study. And so there are limitations associated with that and also mm-hmm. helping me realize, oh, wow, I am kind of narrow minded in some respect in trying to think mm-hmm. of, you know, what the um, potential mm-hmm. scenarios would be. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, that must have been very enlightening. Uh, just getting yeah. feedback from uh, uh, from people about your survey. I, I was recently, um, in the past year, was doing a, uh, a study on sexual dysfunction uh, mm-hmm. amongst like female and male patients after like rectal or like anal cancer. Yeah. And it's just, I just left a, a space just for them to write anything. And I just kind of showed me how much I'm actually not capturing in those questions that I've asked. A lot of ideas that you get from that alone can like help build another whole study yeah. <laughs> or continuation of your study uh, uh, down the line. Um, did you feel like there was any hesitation or like any kind of like, you know, insecurities that came out um, from practitioners around your study um, so that people either didn't want to respond or, you know, if they were responding, it felt like people weren't truly being honest because of like, you know, stigma or like fear. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the questions were very sensitive. You know, they were making, you know, some of them were asking you to recall, you know, what kind of uh, complications you may have had related to pregnancy. You know, some, you know, they also asked about like miscarriage rates and these are all kind of potentially Mm. triggering questions. So I think um, we were trying to be very um, mindful of that, but we also wanted to capture all that data to really report, um, you know, all the, all the, um, roadblocks and the difficulties that women go through while they're trying to balance their career and grow a family. And so we do think that there may, there probably was some response bias, you know, people wanted to write in socially acceptable responses, even though they know that this is a um, completely anonymous survey. And then also Mm -hmm. um, some of the women in some of the respondents were later in their career who had already grown Mm -hmm. children. So there may have been some recall bias as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. We're talking primarily about female oncologists. Uh, who who else was your target group? Uh, you know, besides uh, female oncologists in the childbearing uh, age group, who else did you try to include in this, this study? Yeah, I think that's a good question because one of the reviewers' um, criticism of this study mm-hmm. was, you know, why are you looking at oncologists or, you know, what what is it about oncologists that you think is different than, you know, other female um, physicians? And actually, mm-hmm. we don't think that, um, you know, oncologists are that different than other female physicians. But, you know, it's, I think for us, it was kind of a logistical issue trying to manage a survey right. and trying to, you know, right. it's very difficult to survey, you know, all of, all of um, female um, physicians. And so, you know, we kind of used it as a microcosm of what's going on in the general, you know, female physician population. But um, mm-hmm. it was primarily because all the authors were oncologists and that was our networks. And we think that probably most of the people who responded were um, in academics or in hospital based practices, because um, that was mm-hmm. just our network through social media and Facebook groups and um, just um, email, email chains. So, um, right. Yeah, just right. we wanted to capture really all female oncologists, whether they were of childbearing years or even later, um, who are post childbearing mm-hmm. years, who could just share their experiences. Gotcha, gotcha. It's easier because also you're in the in the community of like uh, 
oncologist as well. So it's probably easier for you to disseminate your, your service to those societies that, you know, you're familiar with. I guess a question that I have is what specifically were you serving or what kind of questions were you asking? And do you think that there any avenue for you to be able to ask like male oncologists who may also have put off, you know, having children, but they're not, obviously they're not carrying babies, right? But right. their wives are waiting for them because I'm saying that because in my, in my scenario, for example, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, okay, I want to finish, maybe I want to finish residency uh, before I have a kid, or maybe I want to reach year three of attendantship. So I don't want to have a kid now. And then I realize by the time I get to say 35 and then I want to have a kid, maybe some issues come up with my wife or with myself. Like what kind of questions do you feel like you're asking? Yeah. That, uh, so, um, you know, as I mentioned before, we did divide up the questions based on three main um, areas. So related to fertility, family planning, just your attitudes, and then about um, about assisted reproductive technology and, you know, if anyone, their experiences with that, and then also discrimination. <laughs> so um, <laughs> we asked, you know, broad-based, like what are some positive factors associated with family planning? Uh, what are some negative factors associated? We had a bunch of factors. And then you know, for a lot of the questions, we did allow for um, open text or free comment um, sections. Mm -hmm. And then we asked um, specifically about, um, I thought probably one of the most um, interesting areas was about discrimination, you know, mm -hmm. um, about, you know, did you ever feel like um, discriminated versus like, you know, did anyone explicitly say anything, you know, trying to tease out those um, nuances. And then also just overall um, issues just we want to get baseline rates about, you know, how how often miscarriages were happening or how often they, um, you know, female oncologists were experiencing those or what percent of women had to deal with infertility or require some sort of counseling or treatment. So there were there were a lot of questions. I don't think we didn't, you know, use all the questions in, in our report or in our um, publication, but we're doing a couple sub studies based on that, um, based on the mm -hmm. remaining information so that we can really utilize everything that we have and use the um, information that all these women have shared with us to um, better inform the public. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dr. Lee, you've mentioned now a few times pregnancy-based discrimination. Can you just define what that is and what you found related to that? Yes, that's a good question. So we found in our study that um, a third reported experiencing discrimination during pregnancy and then Another third stated that they experienced discrimination for taking maternity leave. But I think that's a great question is how do you define discrimination, right? Because, you know, in this survey, we're asking the people who, you know, presumably carried the child or, you know, they were the ones taking maternity leave, what they experienced. It's their lived experience. Okay. And so, yeah. you know, we didn't clearly define discrimination in our survey. And, um, you know, for women who you know, responded that they felt discrimination is just, you know, they reported what they felt. Um, it was mm -hmm. kind of a yeah. binary question, um, yes or no. Mm -hmm. I think discrimination, um, it can be kind of difficult to um, define mm -hmm. in a survey study, in a survey setting. I think what's important is we report what um, what we find or what, you know, the women shared with us. And then um, it's really up to us to determine what we're going to do with that information. Right. All right. Okay. Yeah. You know, what you... But you said, especially, you know, being asked to return early from 
maternity leave. And that's, you know, that is, I'm sure, very stressful on uh, any, any parental unit. Um, and it seems like that is, I think the idea of that can also be a barrier in terms of, you know, family planning, if they feel maybe the culture is not appropriate, or maybe they just aren't able to take a few months of maternity leave uh, that they should be entitled to have. What are some of the other barriers you found? You alluded to timing of boards and, you know, some women seem to have had to even pump breast milk during, you know, in between exams and whatnot. Um, what are some of the other barriers that, that you found women face when it comes to family planning and career decisions? Um, so we did have um, a question that asked specifically about um, all the potential negative factors associated with, um, you know, mm -hmm. what um, about women's fertility and family planning experiences. Um, the most common negative factors associated with fertility planning were long work hours and heavy workload, followed by mm -hmm. um, concern for fertility or biological clock, and then income for trainees, and then um, lack mm -hmm. of nearby family support, which probably has to do with, you know, providing adequate child care, um, right. and then, you know, non-existent or bad maternity leave policies. So um, I think it's multifactorial and multi-level. So, you know, for trainees, obviously has to do with, um, you know, at the institution level, you know, you're not getting um, mm -hmm. mandated, you know, paid leave or even protected time. Um, and the thing with a lot of policies is that there's a lot of policies written out there. Some are suggestions, you know, some <laughs> institutions feel like, um, you know, and, and also I don't feel like there's good oversight in terms of enforcement of these policies. And so a you're lot talking of, about policies by, by program specifically. Yes. Correct. Or even if a society, like if, um, you <laughs> know, the ABR is, you know, if, or um, not the ABR, but like the board of medical residencies, you know, if they're, um, stating a policy, um, it may not be something that's immediately rolled out. It takes time mm, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes it can be just a very strong recommendation. And so mm -hmm. really it's up to institutions and departments to enforce those policies and mm -hmm. to, um, ideally, you know, develop their own as well to help, um, support women in terms of, um, finding the time to bond with their child in the immediate post-birth um, period and also um, giving them the financial support. You know, full paid mm -hmm. maternity leave is very rare. It's hard to right, find. So right. even that and then mm -hmm. um, adequate time. So um, and then, you know, in the home, I think there's other factors too. you know, having a supportive partner, um, you know, having family nearby. Those are other issues, too. Um, but there's it's just, um, you know, really the ones that we wanted to highlight were the systemic issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about like, how does, um, you know, potentially national policies or state laws come into play? Have you found that these have had a, um, an impact on this as well? Yeah. So, um, New York state has a uh, full paid maternity leave. Um, I believe it's for um, two to three months. I'm not exactly sure the amount of months, but um, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty much mandated. So it's a mm -hmm. great, you know, I think I've seen some friends who have taken advantage of that. Um, you know, they're like, Oh, you know, I really want to take advantage of this or 
they feel very motivated to grow their family during the time that they're employed there. Um, mm-hmm. I think it does make a huge difference because I think, you know, they're also very supportive of, you know, making sure that it's also for paternity leave. Right. And, right. Um, gotcha. you know, that's another level of support that um, mm-hmm. not all institutions offer. And I think that once you normalize mm-hmm. that it's maternity and paternity leave, I do think there'll be less discrimination for women in the field mm-hmm. just because um, our counterparts are also able to take leave and support their families and also, you know, mm-hmm. decreases those ideas of social norms that we um, play into. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a difference between private practice jobs and academic jobs um, and in oncology and maybe even outside oncology when it relates to these kind of policies that they may have? I think potentially. I'm not that aware of um, how private practice, mm-hmm. um, how, you know, those benefits and um, how how leave works in private practice as much. But uh, mm-hmm. I do think in, acad- in academia, I think because there's more institutional level policies and, you know, in some institutions, mm-hmm. there's also like uh, we have like, you know, faculty senate, you know, we have groups mm-hmm. that can um, mobilize and advocate for the things that we need. I do think mm-hmm. that there's um, avenues and ways for us to um, advocate for ourselves. Right. Okay. So, you know, one thing that really struck me about what um, you had published is the pregnancy complication rate. Um, and, you know, you've highlighted about two thirds had some type of pregnancy complication, more than one third had two or more miscarriages. And it seems like, you know, a sizable portion has had tried to pursue some type of fertility treatment. But it seems like some of the barriers are really include even this kind of financial um, burden to to pursue these treatments even schedule burdens, right? You have to clear your schedule to even have your doctor's appointments, mm-hmm. um, go to the fertility clinic. What did you find regarding fertility treatments and pregnancy complications? And how did that relate to some of the decisions that maybe these uh, survey responders made? So first of all, I think um, there's a lot of women who reported that during training, they didn't know anything about assisted reproductive technology. They didn't even know that um, Mm -hmm. what the options were. They didn't know the differences between like oocyte preservation, IUI, IVF. They just, they just didn't know. And, um, and, you know, no one told them, you know, you're young now, maybe you should freeze your eggs. Right. So a lot of women, um, you know, reported um, feeling like they wish they had known about it, or they wish they had more information about it, or you know, it would have changed their behaviors or it would have changed something that, you know, they would have taken more mm-hmm. steps to preserve fertility. So um, I think they were, you know, the results showed us that um, it's not really talked about in, in the trainee level. And that's kind of the perfect time to start discussing it, um, even in medical school. And, um, and, you know, by discussing it, I think that it will help women try to navigate, you know, their career their career planning as well. Cause I mean, they go, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of help, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're very much related and intertwined. So, um, you know, it, it informed us that it needs to be, um, it, the education needs to start early, but also, mm-hmm. um, institutions need to start. Um, they really need to be able to offer that at an insurance, um, coverage level. So, 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, New York has a great insurance um, policy to be able to do that. You know, Texas, I'm not sure about Texas State as a whole, but our institution at MD Anderson um, started um, offering coverage last year. So that's new. Oh, wow. And um, I do think that, that um, you know, it's still not widely known. You know, recently we mm-hmm. had like a female luncheon and we were talking about that and people were like, oh, I didn't. I didn't know about that, you know, so I think it's still not widely known and <laughs> talked about. So, um, but it, it really does change, um, you know, people's ability to, um, their options, you know, trying to figure out, okay, you know, like Hilario, you were talking about, like, I'm starting to think about like, when, when is this going to happen for me? And, um, right. and I love that because I think that, I think that there's, you know, one, one comment I remember getting in the survey was somebody asked, have you looked at these attitudes in men? And I think <laughs> that is a very important study that needs to be done because, yeah. um, you know, by just asking women, we're kind of putting the onus on women. Right. Right. But, right. Um, you know, in heterosexual relationships, it would also, you know, this is also something that men need to think about. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it by, you know, really, being invested in it, they're also, you know, creating a more equal partnership. Right, right. Yeah, that was kind of my thought behind the question earlier on, is that I feel like a lot of like, um, you know, discrimination based like issues that we see, whether it's in society or on, on, like in our case, medicine, like if, if the people who are discriminated against or if the people who are at some kind of a disadvantage are primarily doing their work all the time, then I think it's like a, a, a bigger mountain to like kind of get over than say like, you know, men, if men are thinking about, you know, how, how they can do paternity leave and be there for their children, but they're going to realize that, oh my God, uh, our female counterparts have been talking about this all the time and we never really <laughs> listened to them, right? Because a lot of these policies, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these policies or lack of policy, right? It's probably because it's, you know, a lot of people making decisions around these things are, you know, men, mm-hmm. right? If you're in a male-dominated field, uh, um, pe- men do not think about these things because traditionally we've made this a woman issue, right? And and so their biases are set into not really thinking about this stuff. And I think I think one of the things is that we can kind of, you know, co-opt men into thinking about this a little bit more and also supporting uh, our female counterparts and also for themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we've talked about some of the findings and going down to the impact on like people's career. What do you, uh, what do you think is the impact on like promotions and like job satisfaction? Uh, you alluded to like, you know, people thinking about their insurance, what kind of insurance available for them? How does that do you think affect people's promotion and job satisfaction in general? Yeah, actually, there was a recent paper out. Um, I don't recall if it was, it may, I do believe it was, um, came out right before, very close or right before our paper came out. And they looked at mm-hmm. um, US female oncologists and found that um, over 20% consider leaving academia in the next five years, given the gender inequality, mm-hmm. specifically associated with promotion and mm-hmm. wow. belonging in their work environment. So we feel like um, because we feel we do feel like this is a concern and that you know women are feeling discrimination for fertility, um, who face discrimination for fertility concerns. And um, and it starts early, you know, it may be mm-hmm. 
maybe, you know, a resident felt something during residency, felt like they weren't being mm-hmm. supported and they thought, you know, I'm not going to go into academia because I feel like I'll have more control over my schedule if I go into private practice. You know, they, right. it, mm-hmm. it can inform their career change and their career decisions. So um, it is really important to be able to level the playing field and um, making sure that, you know, deciding to have a family or deciding to take maternity leave doesn't set you back. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um, and I guess the opposite on the other end is that people who, you know, are, you know, who are very career oriented, do you feel like that there's like a penalty on them? So now you're yeah. very career oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but you're not in a very supportive environment, right? So you have to pick one or the other. So right. people who are career oriented, did you find all, What's your inclination on like how do you penalize for being career rented without really getting that support? Well, you know, in our, you know, we were looking at um, some of the, you know, in our study when we were kind of analyzing this, you know, women, a lot of women who are very career oriented sometimes may end up being involuntarily childless because mm. they they were focused mm. so much on the career. And then by the time they, you know, decide, okay, I, I made it in my career. Now I want a family. It's too late, you know, cause mm-hmm. we have that biological clock. Um, mm-hmm. And actually when, um, you know, there are studies out there showing that, um, you know, there are women obviously who want to take that career path, who decide not to have children, but mm-hmm. um, you know, there was a survey study showing that, you know, most women, do want to have children and that and the, and the women who want to have children or who end up having children they find um, an immense amount of satisfaction and find that experience very rewarding so mm-hmm. um, you know obviously you know growing a family uh, having a career and um, or growing a family and deciding to um, pursue that is a very personal decision and mm-hmm. um, there are you know I have very good friends who decided, you know, <laughs> they made that decision not to have children. And that was the decision for them, best decision for them. But, um, you know, really, it's about the ability to have that choice, right? The ability to, right. um, you know, decide, okay, well, if I want to pursue a career, and I want to um, pursue a family, you know, pursuing a family should not be a detriment to pursuing or having a successful career. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So moving into advocacy, right? Um, so Oncology happens to be one of the specialties where we, we actually have more women, right? It's like around 58% apparently versus 42%. Um, how, how do you think, you know, men and women within, within this profession can kind of come together? How, how do you think we can come together to kind of advocate for better, um, better conditions around family planning and fertility? I think, you know, I was just thinking about this just came to mind because of, you know, what you were saying, Hilario, how you feel like um, about, you know, men's attitudes. I think we need to Mm -hmm. do research on men, you know, men and fertility. Right, right. We never talk about that, you know. And I I think it would be great. Yeah, (laughs) I think. Research project, yeah. Yeah. I think it's important, (laughs) you know, if you, if we normalize talking about, you know, men taking paternity leave, um, men advocating mm-hmm. for themselves saying, you know, I want paternity leave. Like that right. would really change the environment. You know, it would just right. show us that, okay, you know, when you have a colleague who, you know, goes for, on, um, you know, who's pregnant and then she goes on maternity leave, you don't, you don't have any of those 
you know, socially determined like negative thoughts about, okay, why is she mm. you know, going on extra vacation? Or, you know, you, you don't get those <laughs> thoughts anymore because guess yeah. what? You're going to take paternity leave in six months. Right. So right. Um, yeah. right. I do think we need more, you know, he for she in that sense that we need men mm -hmm. to um, talk about it more, <clears throat> you know, having this podcast, being able to, um, you know, shed light on that. This is an important um, topic for you, right? For you, mm -hmm. um, right. Both. So, uh, I think we need to um, also, you know, on a, on higher leadership levels too, being able to, um, you know, have these conversations and advocate for mm -hmm. women and advocate, mm -hmm. you know, for men too about mm -hmm. um, career planning and family planning that they coexist together. Mm -hmm. And then, um, right. and then, you know, we've. I encourage people to also, you know, get involved at the organizational organizational level, like professional societies. I think that mm -hmm. a lot of this work um, came out from just, you know, my co-resident and I sitting in our resident room, just like how right. your podcast was born. You know, we, we were just talking <laughs> and um, talking about, you know, some of the difficulties and challenges that, um, mm -hmm. that existed and how, you know, we're like, nobody's talking about this. Why isn't anybody talking right. about this? So, we were like, well, yeah. we'll form a group. And, you know, we started, um, you know, getting people to join um, Swaro. And then, you know, now it's mm -hmm. like, there's like, it's like a, its own, you know, formal society where there's like formal elections and, you know, people are super passionate, super involved. It's amazing to see Swaro grow. And so mm -hmm. um, it's really just kind of, you know, these ground level, like discussions that spawn into these big, um, movements so i think that mm -hmm. um you know the things that y'all are doing to um you know mm -hmm. bring light to this is is really tremendous yeah yeah and, and thank you because you know you. people like you uh, doing research on this is how we fund you and be able to talk <laughs> yeah, about this yeah. um and i do think that yeah on the resident level we probably need to be you know need to be a little bit more vocal about 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 these issues um who who else is in this space uh, kind of working towards some of these changes on, on like a policy level that you you want us to know? Yeah, you know, Arrow does a great job. Um, they um, work mm -hmm. with um, the Astro leadership. Um, they've also communicated um, a ton with um, ABR. It's been amazing to see Arrow advocate for all the residents. And so I think mm -hmm. um, Arrow does like an amazing job and, you know, they're just we've really made changes. I mean, if you look at even ABR, mm -hmm. um, before, you know, y'all started residency, it was like one, it was, you know, one exam, one exam date for oral boards. Um, you had to travel mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, you know, all we have, we still have, you know, unfortunately rad biophysics and clinical written that are all, you know, separate exams, but you know, we had, um, we had a lot of discussion with the ABR about, you know, what flexibility looks like, you know, what, how this is um, difficult for people who are trying to take care of children and trying to um, juggle all mm -hmm. of that with like such a rigid schedule and people were like planning their pregnancies around yeah. these exams. Mm -hmm. So um, right. and they've made, they've made really substantial changes and it's been amazing to see. I think that that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. We had a, we did a survey study of, um, of trainees um, with, and their impact of the ABR boards on them. And, you know, we were able to report that and they took that mm. into consideration. So um, there's a lot of organizations, you know, starting to really 
um, understand, but act make actual changes. And even at the residency level, um, you know, you can have a certain number of weeks um, without having to extend your training. Um, right. So, right. Yeah. So right. there right. are definitely changes that are happening. Right. Yeah. So w one of our discussions uh, in, in the coming uh, few days or weeks uh, is with a resident from Stanford. Uh, her name is uh, Dr. Banyo, uh, who wrote a paper about uh, some of the policy changes around, you know, uh, family leave and medical leave in residency. And mm -hmm. and like you said in the in the beginning, like a lot of this was like very sounded very suggestive and like programs didn't really <laughs> you know follow through uh initially but now i think that the, the next step that governing organizations are taking is to actually make it not just a recommendation but actually like a mandate kind of thing uh so that mm -hmm. people can you know uh people can have that structure and you know and, and know and be confident that they're being protected in those yeah. in those ways yeah mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. yeah totally how do we, you know, we, like you mentioned, arrow these organizations within our field, but how do we kind of advocate on a, a larger level? Do you work with the medical oncology kind of organizations that are similar to SWARO or the surgical oncology side? Is there any type of national push? Not that I, not that I know of, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. you know? I right. think, yeah. Um, that that would be great. I think that even like um, ASCO, you know, larger organizations, society level organizations are starting to, um, you know, make, mm -hmm. make changes like incrementally, you know, so even at conferences, they have like pumping stations or, you know, um, I think it's less frowned upon to like bring your child to a conference. Um, people are <laughs> doing that more and more. And I think that that mm. is especially, you know, young children where you, you know, you have difficulty leaving them at home or if you're at breastfeeding mm -hmm. and you need to bring the child, I think that people are being more receptive and open to that. And I think this at the society level, they're, um, you know, I think eventually we'll get to a point where they'll encourage that. So, um, mm -hmm. and then some societies are providing like subsidized or free childcare on the premises for, you know, parents who want to enjoy the conference. So, um, I think incremental changes are being made. Um, it would be nice to see, you know, higher policy level, more, um, con you know, more concerted efforts. Uh, I'm not mm -hmm. sure what that would, you know, entail or what that would take to get there, but um, that mm -hmm. would be nice to see eventually. Yeah. 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 So Dr. Lee, thank you, you know, so much for joining us. I think what you're doing, I think really lays the foundation of having a huge, impact on the field in general, on fertility, family planning, career decisions, all really important topics. And, you know, I hope that when I have kids, I also get paternity leave. So, <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Is for others, you know, also interested in kind of learning more about this topic or potentially getting more involved in this area, are there other resources, organizations that you'd recommend they look to and is there any way they can contact you? Yes. So um, we have, you know, for trainees, we have SWARO, um, the Society for Women in Radiation Oncology. It's free to join. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I would definitely recommend getting involved in Arrow. And um, and then, you know, at the, um, you know, once you're in attending or even, you know, if you're not attending, even as a trainee, you can join um, AAWR, which is the Association American Association of Women in Radiation and Radi Radiology and Radiation Oncology. 
And then we mm-hmm. also have mm-hmm. the Radonk Women's Physicians Group, which is a Facebook group dedicated to okay. um, women um, in our field. And it's like a very safe space. You can, you know, talk about anything. Um, I really enjoy being part of that community, promoting and cultivating a, a culture where anybody can feel safe and anybody can feel like they're being supported um, in their uh, family planning um, endeavors, but also in their career. So, you know, mm-hmm. being very encouraging and supportive when you have a colleague who's, you know, about to go on leave. Um, I think that still women feel like, you know, if they're about to go on leave, they have to, you know, make up for what, you know, the time that they're going to be gone for and they feel like the sense of guilt. But, um, you know, we should all celebrate one another in terms of, you know, all of our achievements and all of our, um, you know, the things that we want in our lives. So I think that's, you know, overall just important to, to um, just having an overall long, successful and satisfied, you know, being very satisfied in our careers. And then um, Mm -hmm. I do want to highlight that we have a qualitative study coming out. So um, this is, um, you know, we have a section where um, throughout the survey where you could, you know, um, write in free response text. And so we did analyze them and uh, we just submitted our manuscript. So, um, you know, look out for that. I think it's extremely, um, extremely eye-opening to hear and read about some of like, you know, quotes from women who filled out our Mm -hmm. survey. So um, it'll be, it'll be very informative as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And one final question before we let you go, what do you do for fun when you're not working as an oncologist? Um, So, yeah, I think when I was a trainee, I didn't do, I, I feel like I just didn't have enough fun and take time to pursue my personal interests, but um, Mm -hmm. I, uh, travel a lot with my husband and, um, you know, locally I've been taking like ballet classes and orange theory classes and, um, very cool. yeah, oh. I do a local orchestra and like, I, I'm in the, oh, wow. so yeah, I think it's really <laughs> important to, you know, have a life outside of work and um, <laughs> yeah. it's been really nice to just like take time to enjoy life. And I didn't right. have that before. I think I was so like stressed out about, you know, finding a job and getting the perfect job that I wanted. So, Right. Um, mm. Yeah. And I feel like now I'm really taking time to think about like what what's important in my life, like how um, how do I want to spend my time when I'm not working? So I'm um, right. trying to be very intentional and in, in about everything that I do. And I forgot uh-huh. to mention, though, that, you know, um, if anybody you know wants to reach out, um, I can mm-hmm. leave my email address with you mm-hmm. so you can share. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, so, listeners, uh, this is our conversation with uh, Dr. Lee. Uh, she's been very helpful, and uh, it's been an enlightening conversation. Uh, and we, we hope to someday maybe have a comeback and, and discuss some <laughs> of her studies that she puts out okay. there. Uh, uh, Dr. Lee, thank you uh, for joining us. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch you at some astro meeting or like uh, acro or whatever uh, meetings that we, we all have in common. Thank you so much. Okay, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Tumor Board this week. Uh, we hope that you took something away from this episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate us five stars and like this episode. You can also follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and any other platform that you get your podcast from. 
We hope by now you realize our goal is creating a platform for under-discussed topics in medicine. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you want us to talk about, you can reach out to us via email or Twitter. Our handle is at TumorBoard. Thank you.